The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey guys, grab your Bibles. And for the first time here at Heritage anyway, would you turn to the book of Amos? And there will be no judging of anyone who needs to use the little thing in the front of the Bible to find the book of Amos. No judging. Everyone be nice. I had two earlier today. I'm going to be in the book of Amos. This is uh, going to be a little bit new, a little bit of a challenge uh, of a different type for us. We have never as a church gone through, um, at least exp- uh, expositionally, going through verse by verse any of the prophetic writings before. And uh, just Amos is one, just reading through it in my own devotional time not long ago was just I was just really moved by it. It's a very powerful book, and more than anything, it's incredibly, incredibly applicable to where we are today. And so what we're going to be doing today, I'm going to confess right now, is going to be a little bit boring. Um, Today, it it just is. Today's the foundation. When you're building a house, and no one gets too fired up and excited about the foundation photos. It's later when the framing comes in and it starts to look more like a house that we tend to get really excited. Well, today we're going to be kind of laying a foundation for our study of the book of Amos. So we're going to be looking at the background, the context, all of these sorts of things that will frame, if you will, our understanding of the book moving forward. So we're going to cover some territory today, but we won't actually start going verse 1, break it down, go through there, verse 2. We won't do so much of that today, um, but we will dig into that. I'll be back here with you again next Wednesday night, and we'll start doing that along with Famous Amos Cookies. Deal? So that's what we're doing. That's my way of bribing you back after this one that could be tedious. Um, But this is fruitful. Um, This is what what we're going to talk about tonight should give you the tools to be able to even go home this week, and that's your homework, to go home this week and in your own time read the book of Amos. It's not very long, but I think with some of the things we're going to be talking about tonight, it'll give you some framework by which to read through it on your own, and I think you'll be blessed by it. So we're in the book of Amos, and if you can turn there to chapter 1, and I'm just going to read the first two verses, and then we'll pray. Amos 1.1, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would just bless us by your presence and by your Holy Spirit to open our eyes, our hearts, our minds to understand the things that we're going to look at. I pray, God, that you would help us to see how these things apply to us and that we wouldn't get caught up in some informational or intellectual or history lesson. I pray, God, you would minister to hearts even in the foundation that we're looking at, God. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O my King, my Rock, and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is a verse all of us should know really, really well. And I'll say in particular the Wednesday night crowd. If I can, the scholars, the students, if you will, those who are looking to dig in to an even greater degree. 2 Timothy 3, 16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. 
and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, it's important to think about this for just a second. If you want to be healthy, it's important that we have, and it's referred to as what? A balanced diet. That's what we're to eat. Now, no matter what your favorite dish is, let's say that you are a, on a health kick and you want to be really healthy and there's this one dish that you love above all others, no matter how healthy that might be for you, if that's the only dish that you eat over and over and over, as good as it might be, it's going to leave you deficient in other areas because there's no miracle food that covers all of it. I think except for the avocado they're telling us or something like that. There's no miracle food and ranch dressing. Um, but other than that, there's no miracle food that covers all of it. So no matter how good what you eat might be, you're missing out on things that you absolutely need by ignoring everything else. Well, the same is true for Scripture. The Bible tells us, as I said in 2 Timothy, that all Scripture is God-breathed, that all Scripture is profitable. But then it says, if you really think about this, it says, and that all Scripture is there that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So think about this. What this means is that all of Scripture has been given, all of it is profitable, there's value in all of it, and all of it has been given to us that we may be complete. Therefore, it would stand to reason if there are parts of the Scripture that are profitable for us for correction or reproof or whatever, any of those other things, if there's areas of that that are profitable that we leave out, then by default, we have no hope really of getting to this point or being complete or equipped for every good work. It becomes important that we understand the whole counsel of God and that we don't skip any of the Scripture, which is hard at times. I mean, how many of you have already started on a read through the Bible in a year plan? Any hands going up for that? Have you hit Leviticus yet? Because that's where reading plans go to die. That's where reading plans tend to go to die. It's hard, right? But it's fruitful and it's important. And we've even been talking about the law on weekends and how important those things are. And if we were to skip that, then we're missing out on a section of Scripture that is just as anointed as the Gospels, just as God-inspired as the epistles, just as profitable and beneficial to us as the Psalms. And so it's important that we don't ignore parts of Scripture, even if they're intimidating to us, even if we don't feel like we always understand everything about them. There's something about just trusting God, trusting that the Scriptures are beneficial, and just plowing forward in some of those things. Well, that's what we're attempting to do. You would be surprised how few churches in existence in our nation today actually do not teach the Old Testament at all. You'd be surprised. There are many churches that only stay in the New Testament. Partially because some believe we're new covenant, that's old covenant, we don't want to do it. Partially because they're like, look, if we're going to draw people in, we can't be reading Leviticus, so let's just stay over here where it's safe and talk about grace and mercy and Jesus, because people like Jesus, but in the Old Testament, God seems grumpy and people are dying, and let's avoid that. There's a lot of people that take that approach, and some just don't understand. They just don't understand that Christ is present in all of the scriptures, and as we're going to see. So, very few churches, more, fewer than you would imagine, teach the Old Testament. Fewer still teach the prophetic writings because they just are hard. They are. And some of them are filled with judgment after judgment after judgment. And for some of us, we might read through some of the Psalms and you get that full kind of feeling like, oh, this just blessed me, or there's that nugget we can chew on. But when you're reading things in some of the prophetic writings that says everyone's going to die, it's not really the thing you want to meditate on all day, right? 
but, but it's there, and it's just as God breathed, and it's just as inspired as everything else. So not very many teachers or, or churches actually do touch the Old Testament very much. Fewer still touch the prophetic writings. Fewer still touch the minor prophets, books like Amos. Oh, they might hit the big ones like Jeremiah. They might hit Isaiah. Um, few people like Ezekiel, so we'll skip that one. But, but some of those big ones, like we'll hit those because there's, there's passages that we know so well. Let no man despise your youth, Jeremiah says. Or in Isaiah, you know, the great Thomas Kincaid painting, every other one I think has rise up on wings as eagles and walk and not grow weary. So, so we love those. But the minor prophets do not get a lot of attention. They just don't. The book of Amos in particular is a small, often overlooked, sometimes even hard to find in your Bible. Um, it's one of the prophets, one of the minor prophets it's referred to. It doesn't mean it's not as important as the bigger prophets. It just means it's smaller. It's just shorter. And so it's a prophetic writing. Now, before we go forward, we need to clarify something. Because usually when we talk about prophets, prophecy, prophetic writings, we think of telling the future. But those of you that were with us in that workshop when Todd Miles was here to share with us about biblical interpretation, he talked about the genre of the prophetic writings. And the way he laid it out, and it's absolutely true, is this. Prophets are not foretellers. Prophets are forth-tellers. The job of a prophet is to take a word from God and speak it forth to, to everyone else. Uh, um, there's a sense in which when I'm preaching up here, I am giving prophecy. And you go, but you're not telling the future. No, but I am relaying to you God's word. And a prophet was a man who was specifically raised up by God for a specific purpose of carrying a message to a group of people. In this case, it's going to be Amos to the people of Israel, of the northern kingdom of Israel. So he's not so much a foreteller. Now, might God give him a word to share with the people that does predict the future? Sure. But that's not the bulk of what they do. You can be a prophet and never predict the future, but you can't be a prophet if you are not faithfully simply relaying the word of God. And so that's what a prophet is. Therefore, prophecy or a prophetic book like Amos is simply a direct discourse from God to a group of people that's mediated by a man. So God takes a guy like Amos and says, I have a message I want you to deliver to that group of people over there. Here it is. And it is Amos's job then to go and deliver that message to that group of people. Though that is what the prophetic writings all are. Be careful to get caught up in some of the prophets when you're reading these books and always looking for some sort of end times thing. Where does Israel fit in? Where does America fit in? What about oil in Iraq and all those? Be careful. That's not the purpose of the prophetic writings, the vast majority of them. It is simply God giving a message to a specific group of people. That's what the prophetic books are all about. And so in this particular case, Amos is given a message by God to carry to the northern kingdom of Israel. And so you'd say, okay, so then what does that have to do with us? Why do we care about a specific message from God to northern Israel in 8th century B.C.? Why does that actually apply to us? And what you're going to see over the next two, three months, however long it takes us to get through this, it's not a very long book at all, um, what you're going to see over and over and over is that the book of Amos rings with chilling clarity to the Western and, dare I say, even American church specifically. I mean, chilling clarity. It is incredibly applicable. This isn't just a book of historical interest at all. Everything written, Timothy just told us, everything written in this book is written that we might grow and be complete, right? But this book in particular is maybe 
not only one of the more relevant, but maybe one of the more readable, actually, of the books for the modern church in this particular day and age. And unfortunately, it tends to get glossed over or not looked at or maybe simply misunderstood. So what we're going to see is that this book is incredibly applicable to us today. And I know, we, I say that about every book, I know that. But like, I mean it on this one, right? Like, this is really the truth. And so here's what we're gonna do today. I'm just going to lay the framework for this, and then next week we're going to start digging into it. And we're going to do that by looking at four specific questions today, answering four specific questions. Who was Amos? What is going on in the culture at this time that necessitated such a letter? What was it that Amos was saying? What's the overall theme of what Amos, the message he's delivering? And then why should we be studying this now? That's our four questions. And so without uh, hesitation, let's just go right on. Question number one, who was Amos? Amos is actually the first chronologically of the writing prophets. So even though it's found later in secession, the way the book is put together, it's on the front end in terms of the writing of the prophets. But we don't know a ton about Amos. In fact, there's only two places that we get any sort of insight into who Amos himself is, and it doesn't give us a ton. Um, The first would be in verse 1. Take a look at chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. So Amos was among the shepherds of Tekoa. Tekoa to this day, about eight miles south of Bethlehem, is known for uh, hosting large breeds or, or large flocks, excuse me, of sheep still to this day. It's a primary ground for shepherds even to this day. And Amos, we find out, was one of the shepherds of Tekoa. Now, the language of that actually gives us a slight bit more detail, though it might not exactly, you know, set your hair on fire with excitement. But, but what it does say is, is the word used there is not so much master, like owner of many sheep. It's more like hireling. Like a shepherd who, maybe he doesn't own the sheep himself, he's hired to come and actually take care of someone else's sheep. Now, maybe he was a master shepherd, we don't know at all, but there were other words that the writers had to choose from that would have spoken to owners or more entrepreneur. The word used here is is a pretty basic word that seems to say he was a hireling who was brought in to take care of other people's sheep. Um, Nothing really special, just one of the shepherds in that area. The second thing we find, and it's a small book, you can flip there, in Amos chapter 7. Keep your finger in one, though. We'll come back. In Amos chapter 7, verse 14, there's one more uh, little snippet of information that's given to us about Amos. It says in 7.14, Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman, and a dresser of sycamore figs. Okay, so he's talking about this guy, um, Amaziah, as we're going to learn about soon. One of the priests, not a fan of Amos at all. We're going to get to know him well coming up pretty soon. Not today. Forget that part. But it says he was no prophet or prophet's son, so he's not a guy of lineage. He's not like a known guy. He's not a guy who goes around giving prophecies everywhere, and now it's this group of people's turn. He was just a shepherd didn't come from a, his dad wasn't a prophet, just a simple shepherd. And then not only that, he had one other area of expertise, it would seem. It says that he's a dresser of sycamore figs. And the dresser of the sycamore figs, uh, really an easier way that we would say it to understand it today, he pruned trees. 
he would prune back the sycamore trees in order to increase its fruitfulness, which we could go on a whole other tangent um, about God using him to prune Israel, but we're not going to do that today because we don't have time. This is what he actually did. So, so here's what we're talking about. Amos was not, as you're going to see, he lived in a culture that was very wealthy, very prosperous. Um, he, he lived at a, at a high point, really, in many ways for the Israeli kingdom, but he's not that guy. He's not um, anyone special. He doesn't own the sheep. He, he's a general laborer, essentially. He's a hired hand who takes care of sheep, and when the time comes and given seasons, he goes and trims some trees. That's it. Nothing special. He's, well, he's kind of a, a, a nobody. In fact, if you were to say, what's the most remarkable thing about Amos? You might say, it's remarkable that there's nothing remarkable about him. Nothing whatsoever. Which is a recurring biblical theme that warrants pressing on for just a moment here. That God uses these types of people all the time. You guys know the passage. We were in 1 Corinthians not long ago, but it does say, 1 Corinthians 1.26 says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards or powerful or of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It is a recurring biblical theme that you see over and over and over where God chooses people almost for spite, like, like almost like intentionally, who's the guy around here that they would least expect pull anything off? And that tends to be the type of thing that he does. And he does it intentionally, Corinthians teaches us, because the goal is not that people look at the guy and go, wow, look how gifted he is. Wow, look how skilled he is. Wow, look how powerful he is. But that they would see beyond the guy and go, wow, look at that God that could do such a thing through this man. That's the idea. It goes against everything that we do as a society. Like we worship sports heroes and, and musicians and we look for the cream of the crop. When we're doing job interviews, we want to wean it down to the best possible candidate. Um, we do it for years in politics trying to find the wrong guy. I mean, we do that kind of stuff all the time. But, but God seems to have an inverted model, much like the kingdom of God tends to be. A completely different model than what we're used to. Just consider, if you will, the three most influential men, arguably, I, I would say easily, but the three most influential men in the Old Testament, for example. The first guy is Abraham. Who was he? He was nobody. He was just a moon worshiper in a foreign pagan land. God just chose him and poured grace out on him and said, by the way, I'm going to need you to move. You don't have any land. You're not going to be a landowner. You're going to live in tents the rest of your life. But this is what you're going to do, Abraham. Now go. He didn't have kids. He didn't have lineage. That whole kid thing is going to become a major issue for him in a lot of ways. And there's several of the stories that, that broadcast, if you will, the failures of Abraham more clearly than the successes. Abraham, though we, we, we study him in Sunday school and we honor him, he was a nobody. He was a nobody. How about Moses. We go, well, you can't do that with Moses. Moses wasn't a nobody. I mean, remember, Moses was the guy who was actually 
uh, uh, remember he was rescued by the uh, daughter, Pharaoh's daughter, and then so he was raised up in the kingdom, and he was like high in command. He got the best education. He got the best training. Um, there's historical documents that teach us that maybe he was a very big military leader and had some massive successes before the stories that we're more familiar with. Moses doesn't count because Moses had skills. In fact, of all the people of Israel during that time, they were all what? Starts with an S, ends with laves. Slaves. So that's who they were. So Moses is the only guy getting this kind of education. He's the only guy getting this kind of training and this position of power and all that. So that doesn't fit, right? Not true. Because when Moses went in his power and in his experience and in his strength and said, I'm going to go and release my brothers, I'm going to take this thing on, and you can read that that was his motivation. You read it in Acts chapter 7, it says so. It wasn't just that he found one man beating an Israelite brother, but that he saw that as an opportunity to start the revolution. That's what he was going to do. And when he went and he struck down the Egyptian, kills this guy, what happens? Everyone rejects him. And then they're like, oh, so are you going to do this to us now? And the next thing you know, Moses runs for his life. And where does he end up? In the desert doing what? He's a shepherd, just like Amos. Not just a shepherd, didn't own his own sheep, just like it. He's working for his father-in-law, infinitely worse, for 40 years. 40 years. How many people in this room, and I'm raising mine, are over the age of 40? Think back about where you were 40 years ago. I was two. 40 years ago. Like, that's a long time. But then, when he is sufficiently humbled, I mean, think about it. After 40 years, do you think he still expects God's going to use him? I mean, of course, at this point, he's like, I blew my chance. It's been 40 years, God's already raising somebody else up or doing whatever, and, and I'm just stuck out here. And then when God does call him, what's his response? Not me. I can't do that. Not me. I can't even speak right. You're going to have to get somebody else to talk for me. I, ca I can't do this. He, he, he was a nobody. Living in the wilderness, raising his father-in-law's sheep insecure and weak. That's who Moses was. And then the final one was David. I mean, David, greatest king in Israeli history and still revered all over Israel. But you got to remember when Samuel came to David's household and said, hey, I'm coming to anoint the new king of Israel. Get all your sons together. David was so young, so small, and so insignificant that his own father didn't even bother bring him in. His own father was like, there's no chance it's that one. So I'll just bring these guys in. And that's the famous passage you guys know. God looks at the heart, man looks at the outward appearance, and David is the example for that. And even going into David and Goliath, or how David had slain the bear and the lion, all those stories emphasize David's smallness. In fact, isn't he paralleled against Saul? Saul's referred to as what? Head and shoulders above everyone. And David's the little runt that can't even wear the armor. David was a nobody. He was a what? Shepherd. That's what he was. So this is who Amos is. And, and I think we need to remember this. Because we pray for revival in our country, don't we? Don't we want to see an act of God and a movement of God? So when we do that, where do we tend to look? The Billy Graham revivals, the Greg Laurie movements, the mega churches of our day that are on television and have all the influence. But if God was to do an amazing work of revival in our nation right now, I'm not so sure that's how it would go down. I, I wonder if we look in the wrong places because it doesn't seem to fit what God has done all along. 
And, and let's just face it, right now in our day and age, the idea of the celebrity pastors and the mega churches and all that, it's not playing out too well in a lot of places. What we're finding is people that maybe God grabbed them when they were nobody, they became somebody as the church got big, and the danger in becoming somebody is you start thinking it's all about you. And there's churches that we have benefited from fellowship with and learned from and pastors that we love dearly and have grown from that some of them don't even exist anymore. Mars Hill in Seattle. I mean, a couple of years ago, our whole leadership team and 20 guys from our church all went up to the Resurgence Conference up there, and it was amazing. And Matt Chandler spoke, and Greg Laurie was up there, and all these guys. It was incredible. One year later, that church doesn't exist from 15,000 people and probably the most influential church in the country at that time to no such thing as Mars Hill Church anymore. That's unbelievable. I think when you look at Gideon, when you look at Jesus choosing his disciples, he didn't go to the local seminary and pick the best guys. He got the guys that were the leftovers that didn't make it into the seminaries. That's who he chose. Why? Because the idea is that the glory has to go to him. And so the lesson in that is, if by some amazing thing that we end up in a position where our serving God puts us in some sort of limelight or gives us some sort of attention, woe unto us if we start thinking it's us. And learn the importance of humility in the scriptures and don't start thinking it's about you. Remember, that's why Paul writes it, you're a nobody. Don't you remember when you got called? You guys were nobodies. Don't forget that. It's the exact opposite of what our culture says today, right? Self-esteem, you can do it. God's like, no, with, apart from me, you can do nothing. Exact opposite of what our culture says. But the other thing, too, is to understand this, is that seminary, awesome. I love seminary. Um, studying, all of these things, awesome. Qualifications and someone who's a skilled orator. I mean, all those things can be really important things in ministry, but there is nothing, there is nothing more important or even close to as important as a man who has been called by God, anointed by God, and equipped by God's Holy Spirit to carry a message. Because if you don't have that, I don't care about the other stuff that you have. You're nothing. You're nothing. But if the Holy Spirit is working in you, you can be a dumb little shepherd that doesn't even own his own sheep. And God will use you in such a way that thousands of years later, here we sit studying what he did. So don't despise, as the scriptures say, the day of small things. And I think that should bring some hope to us because right now we live in a time where the church is more and more and more becoming marginalized. We're not the majority anymore, and it's going to get worse. And we can get into this mindset like, oh, no, it's over. It's never going to work out. But I would say maybe, maybe it's actually primed for God to do something. In fact, I would say that the whole book of Amos might even be an absolute judgment about what happened to our, if you will, the Western church when we were in a position of power. And it might take a period of time where we're not the ones in control where we're dealing with difficulty and suffering for us to actually see how God works because too often I think we get caught up in ourselves. I just think that's the truth. But we could talk about that at some other time. So here's this nobody. Where does his boldness come from? It comes from his calling. I told you to stay in Amos 7. Look at verse 15. First it says, I'm just a herdsman, a dresser of figs, but the Lord took me from following the flock and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people. That's what we need. If you want to see revival and you want to see stuff change, what we need is God to grab a man with his word and that man be faithful to deliver the message that God gave him. And so, so you, you go, I'm nothing. 
There's nothing I can do. I'm a physical therapist, or I work at Costco, or I work at the hospital, or whatever it is that I do. I can't really affect anything, and certainly not revival in our country. Don't be so sure. You never know what can happen if you will allow God's Word to take you, and then you'll be faithful to go where God's Word is directing you to go. Who knows what you can do? I mean, think of this. Jesus was a homeless guy, and he changed the world, right? So don't despise small things. So who is Amos? He's a nobody. You guys have probably heard the thing before. He's a nobody who wants to tell everybody about somebody. And that's who we're supposed to be. So that's number one. That's who Amos is. Number two, what's the cultural context of this book? Um, We get this in Amos 1.1 a little bit. It says here, in the northern kingdom, or well, it tells us that this happened during the, the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So there's a great earthquake two years before that. That's when this stuff happens. Um, Unfortunately, we have no clue when this earthquake took place. There's no archaeological um, definitive dates. There's guesses and things like that. So we don't know with a lot of really accurate precision exactly the date that this was going by, but we have some really good, reliable markers in that it specifically names out the kings that are ruling at this time. We have Jeroboam, king of Israel, Uzziah, the king of Judah. And so the historical context that's going on here is what we need to understand is that Israel as a whole has been fractured. Israel that was the kingdom built up by David, brought into its glory time under Solomon, and then divided by the kids, now has for about 150 years been segmented. 1 Kings 12 talks about it. There's the northern kingdom of Israel ruled by King Jeroboam, and then there's the southern kingdom of Judah ruled by King Uzziah. Can you guys think of another prophetic writing that talks about Uzziah? In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on the throne from the book of? Well done. So this is what's going on. We have these two kingdoms, northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. And now there's great animosity between the two. In fact, especially those that are not, not in the northern kingdom, but in the northern part of Judah that borders the northern kingdom of Israel, there was great animosity. Because, for example, in verse 1, it mentioned this guy Joash, the father of Jeroboam. And Joash, it says, um, we, we learn in the, the passages, actually you can read it on your own if you'd like, 2 Kings 14, Joash decides one day to invade the northern part of Judah to go in for a spoil. So he takes a group of people with him and goes into the northern kingdom, makes his way to Jerusalem, breaks down some of the walls, steals gold and silver. In fact, a bunch of gold and silver from the Lord's house in Jerusalem and steals it and goes back into the northern kingdom. Now, if you were of Judah, especially in that northern part of Judah where you border that, how do you think the Jewish people are going to feel about that? None too good. There was great animosity between the two. So imagine the challenge for Amos, who's from Judah, who gets a message from God, and God says, take this message to Israel. So Judah leaves his home people, goes into Israel, and gives this message. Now, what was the climate like, though? What was, what was the world like, or in particular, what was the northern kingdom of Israel in particular like during this time? Let me just mention three things that kind of are earmarkers for what the world looked like at that, or that area looked like at that time, and see if any of it rings true, or at least familiar, for where we are today, okay? Number one, it was a time of great economic prosperity. In fact, it was probably the most economically prosperous time for Israel since the reign of Solomon. 
There was great wealth and great prosperity going on. We're going to find out in just a little while that it was happening at the expense of the poor and sometimes through systematic abuse of the poor and the weak. But there was great prosperity going on. A lot of people making a lot of money and everybody really, really happy about it. In fact, the, the way it actually breaks down, and, and we see this, by the way, in Amos 3, verse 15, if you wanted to look there yourselves, it says in Amos 3, 15, I will strike the winter house along with the summer house. I mean, you see what we're saying here? You got your summer home over here, and then you got your winter house over here, and, and he's saying, look, I'm taking them both down. I'm taking them both down. And the houses of ivory will perish. The great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. There was great prosperity in the place that time. Now, one of the reasons that this was going on was Israel thought it's moving into a golden age because previously they had been under the oppressive thumb of the Assyrians, but the Assyrians ended up spreading themselves a little bit too thin. They had to go deal with some things on the coast. They were dealing with some things up north, and so they had all this other stuff going on, and they basically left Israel alone. And during that time, Israel grew financially, and they became really, really wealthy. And their belief was Man, God is blessing us. God has shown us favor. That's why we're prospering, and the Assyrians are done. They really thought they were moving into this golden age of time. What they aren't aware of, it wouldn't be very many years later where the northern kingdom of Israel would no longer exist because of the Assyrians. They weren't done. They just took a nap, but they came back. But anyway, this is what's going on. It was a golden age, and these people thought that there was great prosperity, and they viewed their wealth as a sign of God's blessing, that God approved of them, and so he was giving them money. Very wealthy, very prosperous. The second thing is this. There was great religious hypocrisy. In Amos 5, verse 21, and we will spend time here, it says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look on them. Take away from me the noise of your song. To the medley of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You've probably heard that last part before, especially if you were alive at all during the civil rights movement. Um, or, or maybe even during the, you know, the Selma movies out and all that stuff, that verse right there was a hallmark of the American civil rights movement for sure. But, but what I want us to focus on is here's God saying, hey, your solemn assemblies, what is that? It's like the church services. He said, I don't want to hear it anymore. Just stop. The sacrifices you're offering, it's annoying. Quit it. The worship, the music, the stuff that you're doing, it's like this clanging cymbal in my ear. I can't stand it. Please stop. So there's all this religious activity that's going on, but it was abomination to God. Why? Because it was religious activity that had nothing to do with an actual heart and relationship with God. In fact, much of the religious activity that they did was done as if it was some sort of magical, manipulative thing that they could do to make sure God continued to bless them. If we do this, God will bless us and protect our prosperity. Has that ever sounded familiar for why people do church things from time to time? This was being done on a national level. And, and then some of the things that they were doing, some of the sacrifices and worship was going on in places like Bethel, where golden calves had been worshipped to God. Abominations, places that they should have never been doing any of that sort of worship. And the type of worship that God had never ordained and wanted nothing to do with. And so what we're going to see 
is that while there was a lot of religious activity, there was no heart behind it, there was no actual worship, and God hated it. Hated it. God hates religious activity that does not include the heart of the people doing it. And we'll spend some time on that. Is there any hypocrisy in the churches today ever? Maybe. The third one is this, moral degeneracy. In chapter 2, verses 7 through 8, it says this. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, they turn, away, uh, turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of God, they drink wine of those who have been fined. Like there's gross immorality going on. There's systematic abuse of the poor, intentional withholding of help to the poor. There's father and son going in and having sex with the same woman and even doing it along the altars where sacrifices and religious activity are actually taking place. And then there's this thing here about wine and fines, and the, what, what most scholars tend to believe it's talking about is that those within the church assemblies, the priests, if you will, would fine the worshipers that come in and force them to pay with wine so that then they could go drink, party, and get drunk on it. So there was great moral debauchery going on, tons of sexual immorality, and, and just constantly declining overall national morality. So think about those. Prosperity, check. I mean, our, our economy may not be what it used to be, but you don't have to travel far to know that we are the most prosperous, blessed people on the planet. We just are and have been for a long time. So prosperity, check, yes. Um, hypocrisy, tons of it, tons of it. I mean, in the early 90s, a survey came out that said 90% of those surveyed claimed to be born-again Christians and in that moment, many of the religious leaders in our days thought the battles are over. We're going to become a full-on Christian nation again, and everything's going to be fine. Well, clearly that wasn't true. Clearly that survey was full of people dealing with all sorts of hypocrisy, saying their one thing and living a completely different way. It just has to be. And then the third thing, moral degeneracy, declining morals, absolutely. We don't even have to, to entertain that anymore. So that's the culture that's going on. That is what... Amos was sent into to deliver this message from God. I think we're going to find it's incredibly applicable to our day and age. So then the third thing, what did Amos say? Now the key to understanding prophetic writings is to understand the covenants. All of the prophets, and you get, Todd Miles touched on this if you guys were at the workshop, all of the prophetic writings deal with or are a response to God's covenants with Israel. God had, using his law, made covenant with the people of Israel. I'm going to be my, your God, you're going to be my people. And then the law was given and this covenant was established between them. You see them doing it in Exodus. You see the covenant ratified again in Deuteronomy. New covenant comes on later in Jeremiah. But the idea is these rules were given that govern the way that we're going to relate to one another. And it was laid out. There are blessings for obedience and there are cursings for disobedience. But this is what it means for us to enter into a covenant. And it's very similar to a marriage. Two people coming together and saying, I commit to you this and I commit to you this. And so there was this literal covenant that took place. And in all of the prophetic writings, all of the prophetic writings are based off of the fact that Israel is unfaithful to the covenant that is made with God. None of the prophetic books start with, you guys are doing great. You're doing great. None of them. 
None of the prophetic books start with like a happy anniversary story. All of the prophetic writings are a prophet sent by God with a message to an unfaithful, rebellious people to say, what are you doing? You're God's bride. You're God's people. You've entered into covenant with him. You're supposed to be, and if you remember the kingdom series from a couple of years ago, some of you might, God's people in God's place, living under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing. What are you doing? So this is what these are all about. And so Amos sent to, as we've already seen, looking at the culture, a rebellious people who have walked away from their covenant with God. They're not ministering to the poor like they're supposed to. They're not worshiping like they're supposed to. Their identity is not what it's supposed to. They've got idols and false gods and all these other things. And so Amos is sent in with a message from God, which you might imagine is going to be what? Pretty unpleasant. Not popular. Not a popular message whatsoever. Why? Because people want to be told the things that they want to hear, and they don't want to be told the things that they don't want to hear. And among all those things, we really don't want to be told that we're wrong. We don't like that. We don't like it at all. Especially for a group of people that, remember, they're interpreting all their financial wealth as evidence that they're doing things rightly. And it's not true. And so Amos comes in with this message and what is the message that he gives them? Go back to Amos chapter 1 and verse 2. In Amos chapter 1 verse 2 it says, And he said, The Lord roars from Zion. This was his message. Judgment is coming. A lion roars right before it attacks and eats. That's what it's saying. God's coming. He's not pleased. He's not happy. This is what it is. Now, judgment is coming. Now, if you'd have just said to the people of Israel in general, hey, I'm here, my name's Amos, I've got a message from God, he said, judgment's coming. Well, the average Israeli, if they knew anything at all, they would have been like, yes, bring it, bring judgment, because all of them believed in what was referred to as the day of the Lord. It was a day of judgment where God would come and enact his judgment against his enemies. So yes, bring judgment, God. Get the Assyrians, get the Babylonians, get the Persians, get all these people, these pagan people, and preserve your people, your chosen people, the people of Israel. They believed that judgment was coming. Not for a second did they ever believe that judgment was coming for them. They thought they were the favored ones. That's not for us. We're covered. God's not, no, we're fine. In fact, we've got all this money. That just proves how much God loves us. Judgment's coming for everyone else, and that's not it. In fact, the basic message of God to Israel, not to the Assyrians, the basic message of the book of Amos to Israel is, my patience has run out. Did you know that? Did you know that God's patience can run out? Some of you might not have, because we think of his mercies are new every morning, of this unconditional love, this grace for everyone who repents. And, and though many of God's attributes are absolutely inexhaustible, not so with patience. The Bible's clear that his patience has an expiration date. It does run out. Um, I mean, you, you know one of the passages probably really well. Second Peter 3 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, but he is what? Patient, desiring that none would perish. But if you keep reading that passage, what does it say? But make no mistake, the day's coming, and there's a fire coming, and there's judgment coming. There's going to be a day when God is no longer patient with these people. And this is Amos' message. God has been patient with you, and he has waited for you to repent and come back to what you're supposed to be, to return to being God's people, to live the message God has given you. He has been waiting and waiting and waiting, and now time is up. Here's what one of the commentators says about this. 
God's patience is vast, far greater than ours, but it is not the patience of a moral invertebrate. God is not a jellyfish. He has a spine. And because he has a spine, his patience, unlike some of his other divine attributes, is not infinite. God can come to the end of his tether, and he can be provoked once too often. He can and sometimes does say, this is the last straw. The book of Amos is the record of one such occasion in the history of the people of Israel, a moment when God's patience ran out. What a terrifying thought. The message coming is, God's coming, and he's coming for all of you. That's the message. Now, in this particular case, Amos goes to tell them, God is on the war path, this is what's coming, and did it end up being true? Was Amos telling the future, if you will, prophecy on that? Absolutely, because by 722 BC, there will be no longer a northern kingdom. There will be none. But lest you look at this as God being angry and I'm just coming and there's no hope, the call was to repentance. The call was to repentance and the people would not repent. And so Amos came and he's reminding them, look, blessing accompanies obedience, but judgment accompanies disobedience. You need to choose wisely. So that's what was going on. That's the message Amos had. And then the last one, why should we study this now? The reason, other than the cultural relevance that I think we've already touched on, is that Amos is not a man of the past speaking to a people of the past about a God of the past. Um, The book of Amos actually is God addressing his world and speaking to his covenant people through a mediator. That's really what it is. It's God addressing his world and speaking specifically to his covenant people through a mediator. So why should that matter to us today? Well, then let's just ask, who are God's covenant people today? Is it Israel? No, it's the church. And, And this is why we know this. Jeremiah 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand out of Egypt. That covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with them, and you know how it goes on. I'm going to write my word upon your heart. There's this new covenant, speaking of this covenant that would be ushered in by Jesus Christ. But even more so, 1 Peter 2, 9, Peter says this, and listen to the words he uses. They're all phrases used in the Old Testament to point to Israel. This is what he says about the church, about us. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So in this day and age, not only is the culture that we see out there really eerily similar to what Amos was dealing with at the time, but we are the covenant people living within the culture today. And so in the same way that this message was relevant to the people of God then, it is still absolutely relevant to the people of God today. So what we're going to ask ourselves as we go through this, are there places where the people of God or the church of God, the covenant people of God, have fallen asleep? Are there places where we're dreaming of our past privileges and and, and resting on successes or prosperity? Not worried, no way judgment's coming for us, we're fine. Have we gotten lazy? Is there religious activity without relationship? I think there's tons of it. I think there's tons of it. And in this book, Amos was sent to wake them up. To wake them up. 
Oh, what the Western church could gain if it would read the words of Amos and wake up. There's so much that could change. There's so much that could be different. And then please understand, God does not give marks, if you will, for simple attendance or religious activity. We're going to see he cannot stand it. In Amos' day, the churches were packed. They were packed. Everyone went. So it wasn't that no one went to church and we had all these pastors on Sunday going, if only the culture would hear. They all came, but they were going through the motions of doing religious activity when really the only kingdom they were concerned about was their own. And that's been a massive trap for the Western church. It's been a massive trap for us today. And God got to the point where he said, I don't want to hear it anymore. Your sacrifices without your heart mean nothing to me. Stop it. And so may we as a church do some serious gut checking as we go through the book of Amos. I mean, are there things that we here at Heritage do that God would look down and say, Heritage, would you just stop it? You're trying to impress me with this service and with this worship and with this stuff, but your heart's not in it. You're just going through the Sunday motions and going through the Wednesday motions, but what you really care about is Monday through Friday when you're building your own empire and striving for prosperity. Or what you're really after is immoral relationships and all of these sorts of things. What you're really after is everything else but me. And so heritage, I'm over it, just quit. In fact, your day is numbered. Could it be? I pray that we would do some heart check on this stuff. And it's hard to listen to, guys, because you gotta remember, as with many of the prophetic writings, when the prophet came and he gave God's message, most of the people stuck their fingers in their ear and didn't want to hear it, didn't listen, and it didn't play out super well for them. But right now, we're in a time where God is gonna be speaking to us from this particular book And perhaps there's time for repentance and for change and for good inventory and heart check, not just for us as a church, but for us as a people, the living temples, if you will, that we might do some heart check and make sure. But in churches in general, I mean, today God is speaking to his church from this book. So are there churches around that might be strong on politics and weak on prayer? Do you think? Are there churches around that are unfaithful to his word in order to gain followers? You think there's some of those around? Are there churches today that focus on experience but deny truth? Are there churches that are well-versed on psychology and sociology but not so much on theology? Are there churches preoccupied with growth instead of the God who grants growth? I would say so. Are there churches that have reduced biblical obligations to personal preference and option? Absolutely. And in fact, I would say even among the best churches that are out there, we've all gone through seasons where we've strayed and God has, through corrective discipline or through a graceful call, brought us back to where we need to be. And so my prayer is that as we go through the book of Amos, this will be a really good time for us as a church to take a lot of stock in what we're really called to do, what we're supposed to be about, who we are as the covenant people of God, and that we would understand just the reality. His grace is so good, but God is still not to be trifled with. He is the king. As we said Sunday, he is not codependent. 
He is not a God that allows people to endlessly and forever continue to stomp all over his boundaries. He has a plan. He has a will for his kingdom. And my prayer is that even as we study these things, Heritage will find areas, if there are some, and I'm sure there are. We're not a perfect church. But that we might find places where we as individuals and we as a church go, God's calling us away from this and back onto what his real program is. And that maybe just as Amos would say, you know, I'm good at pruning And so, Heritage, let me prune you guys. It might be painful. There might be times when the saw is noisy and you're going to want to put your fingers in your ears and it's going to hurt and you don't want to hear it, but the end result is infinitely more fruit. That's the grace of God in these things. Even the corrective discipline of God is a grace because it's always there to produce fruit. That's what discipline does. And then also, of course, what we're going to see is as we move forward, even the judgment that came did not eliminate the grace of God because God still had this recurring theme of this promise of this son that was coming. But my challenge is this. It'd be really easy for us to look at this, and we're done, that it'd be really easy for us to look at all these things and go, oh man, look at that culture, and look at that culture, and look at that culture, and then study all these things in Amos as if he's not talking to us. To make it sound like Amos is talking to those people out there. Let me assure you, he's not writing the common culture. He's writing the covenant people of God. And we have no ability nor right to go outside the walls of this church and point out the predicament that people outside the church are in until we understand the predicament that we ourselves are in. That's what gospel ministry is all about. So if you will, let's stand and pray that God will just bless our time in this book. God, I pray that as we move forward beginning next week in the book of Amos, Lord, that you would just speak to your people and that we would have hearts to hear, painful though it might be. Lord, I thank you for corrective words and your corrective word, and I pray, Lord, that that you will move amongst your church, that you would do a pruning if necessary, that more fruit might grow. I pray, God, that you would fine-tune us, help us to see more clearly what the mission of this church is to be, what you have called us to be, what you want your covenant people to look like. And I pray, God, that you would give us the faithfulness to do even hard work when necessary, us as individuals or us as a church. But more than anything, Lord, even as we study these things, I pray that we would see your grace shine through. Because in reality, how can we complain about you pruning your people when we realize what a miracle it is that you could ever even call us your covenant people. And so we are so thankful, God. So Lord, will you bless our time in Amos? Will you grow us and teach us, Lord? And will you be our instructor and our teacher? For Lord, this is your church. And we, like Amos, we are just hireling shepherds no matter who we are. You're the great shepherd. So may you rule over your sheep. In Jesus' name. All God's people said? Amen. All right, we'll start digging in next Wednesday, and we'll be in Galatians this Sunday. God bless you guys. Love you.